Hi, I'm Kay Crudson, and you're listening to Cradle, the podcast. In this podcast, we'll be hearing some incredibly brave stories as we explore different issues and topics surrounding baby loss. We'll hear from some healthcare professionals just what's being done to best support those that need it. From family and friends, how are they affected? And we'll hear from you, your story. Because together, you're not alone. We're probably going to cry, but I do hope there's going to be laughter. And more importantly, there will be support. This is Cradle the Podcast. I truly believe that every guest on Cradle the Podcast is a special guest in their own right. And the same can most definitely be said about the guest that I'm about to introduce to you. She, uh, I feel like if you cut this lady in half, she would be yellow and she'd have the words cradle written amongst her. She stood out to me. I've been with cradle now for hmm, two, three years and I've always known about this lady, mainly because whenever I think about her, I'm have a smile on my face she goes above and beyond for everyone and she just brings joy into the cradle family she's one of our ambassadors and it's the lovely Jules Jules thank you so much for being with us today thank thank you so much for inviting me it's a real pleasure so Jules I know a lot about you (laughs) a lot of people don't know a lot about you that are listening now so first things first tell me what you do for cradle I started off um sharing posts basically just on Facebook and then it expanded to a lot more than that getting involved with my local hospital in Stoke um, fundraising encouraging other people to fundraise and carrying on sharing the message of what Cradle does and what we stand for. So you are one of our ambassadors Mm -hmm. and you're part of the core family of Cradle and you're there to support men, women, families in Stafford and Stoke uh, and the wider reach, like you said, you share posts. But why did you want to get involved with Cradle in the first place? It's a long old story, really, I suppose. Um, For over 30 years, I've suffered in silence because there's been no support network. My story goes back to 1990 when I suffered the first of three ectopic pregnancies. and was sent home from hospital with no support network, no nothing, just me and my husband to get on with life, basically. And it took a long time to understand what had happened to me. My third and final ectopic pregnancy was 1996. Again, still no support network, no office of counselling, just sent home, get on with your life. You know, this is what happens to people. Fast forward to about three years ago or probably a little bit longer than that, I found a Twitter feed called My Ectopic Journey. And everything on that lady's story resonated with me massively, right down to the fact that she had absolutely no support whatsoever. I didn't know her name at the time. I just followed this lady, who to me was remarkable. Then I discovered who she was, again, through Twitter, messages and different things. 
And then I get an invitation to be part of Cradle and found out that Louise, um, was who was the founder of Cradle, was actually the lady who started the Ectopic Journey programme on Twitter. And she invited me to be an ambassador. And I jumped at the chance. No hesitation whatsoever. It wasn't a case of, oh, let me think about it. It was a case of, yes, definitely, because here is somebody who understands what I've been through and somebody who can possibly help me heal. So here I am three years later, not healed, but healing and supporting other people through and hoping that we can change as an organisation, change the way the NHS treats ladies who suffer any form of pregnancy loss, regardless of gestation or anything like that, how they deal with it, the language that's given, you know, and and basically that's me, you know, that I, I can't be any different than I am. The passion I've got for Cradle, as you said earlier, cut me in half, I'll probably bleed yellow, I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> but certainly Cradle's given me that place to have my voice heard. And I go into work and I talk about Cradle, I go into hospitals, I talk about Cradle, I go to the pub and I talk about Cradle and people think, oh God, she's here again. But off the back of that, I've got a fantastic network of people now who will support me. And that's all down to this very new, still very small organisation who supports so many hundreds of people throughout the year. And I think it's fabulous. Jules, can you take me back to the Jules of 1990, pre your fertility journey? Mm -hmm. Tell me about that, Jules. Right. My entire life had been... I wanted three things. I wanted a a good husband, I wanted a nice home, and I wanted a family. Now, the family for me was going to be huge. You know, I'm I'm the kind of rugby team mum, if you like. And I met my husband in 1988. We got married in 1989, and we decided the next thing we wanted was a family. So we started trying, and throughout 1989, nothing happened. So... Early on in 1990, I had a referral to a gynecologist who put me on some medication called Clomid, which were used for ovulation. So she said to me, next time I see you, you'll be pregnant. August, I can't remember the date exactly, but certainly the middle of August 1990, I'd gone out with my dad for the day and I felt ill. I thought I was just having a heavy period never thought anything of it you know it wasn't unusual and that was on a Friday on the Saturday we'd been out in the evening had a fantastic night out early hours of Sunday morning I was really really ill I was in agony I was sick I just couldn't control anything and Tony my husband was due to go to work on that Sunday morning and he was so concerned he called the doctor And the doctor came out and he said, well, could you be pregnant, Mrs. Lindop? And I'm like, doubt it. Not, not, you know, bleeding like I am. It was hemorrhaging sort of level. And he said, well, I want you to go to hospital. He didn't tell me why. I, you know, no idea what happened if you had a miscarriage. I'd never heard of an ectopic pregnancy. And none of those things, the fact of being pregnant never even crossed my mind. So um, So when he said that, did you think... Did you stop and think, hang on? No. Could I? No. no. I was, honestly, I was so naive. 
<laughs> it was incredible. I can't believe how naive I was at the time. And uh, off we went to hospital in Wolverhampton and pregnancy test came back positive. And I was absolutely delighted. But it never occurred to me that, you know, you, you can't bleed that heavily and be pregnant properly. But nobody even mentioned ectopic pregnancy to me. So on the Sunday afternoon, I suddenly had no pain whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. I thought, great, go home now. You know, I'm fine. It was just a stomach upset. And they wouldn't let me go home. And on Monday, I was taken for a scan. And if for anybody who's ever had a scan where they turn the screen away, that is really, really frightening. Because all you want to see is that heartbeat or something. Something that shows that that pregnancy is yours and it's real. The screen was turned away. And I went back onto the ward and was told I had to go for surgery. But they didn't know what type of surgery. So I'm bundled off down to surgery and I have quite vivid recollections of what happened, you know, being put to sleep. And I can remember lots and lots of noise, lots of noise around me. And I could hear somebody shouting, we're losing her, we're losing her. And I couldn't even move my little finger to say, no, you're not losing me, I'm still here. And it was the strangest experience because I'm facing that light that everybody talks about. And a voice oh came God. in. Yeah, honestly. And a voice came into my head quite clearly. And I still remember it because I know who it was as well. And this voice was male voice. And he said to me, it's not your time. You're going back. And I know oh to this God. day, it was my granddad. So surreal. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I don't, I don't talk so openly about that situation, but it's something I think people need to be. It needs, it needs to be told. You know, people... Mate, I've got goose pimples. <laughs> yeah. You, what, you, you know, it's something that I've I've read, you know, I've read in a magazine, someone say it, and you're like, oh, yeah, really. But I've never known anyone who's actually been in that experience. Yeah. it's It was very, very what? vivid. Very vivid. And very wow. frightening. Because all you want yeah. to do is move move your finger or or flutter your eyelids or something and to let them know that you're actually there still. And uh, yeah, that was quite frightening for me at the time. But for Tony on the following day when he found out, we'd only been married for 18 months. Oh my word. And is there anyone, you know, at what point are they then saying, you know, Mrs Lindop, you've... You've suffered an ectopic pregnancy. But do you still not know at this stage what's happened? No. I had no idea until the following day. Because when I was put back on the ward, um, I was just left to sleep. And then they told me. And I'd never even heard of it. Back then, they were one in a million. So it just goes to show, you know. And I had a fantastic consultant who came and explained everything to me um, and he said to Tony he said put a pound on her at a million to one of getting a second one because that's how rare they were so we left hospital after a week and um, just told to take our time see how let, let my body settle down because it was major surgery 
you know, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't minor. It was, it was huge surgery. And so my body healed. I took about three months to heal before I went back to work, carried on with my life, kept trying. What's going through your head? Because you weren't, I know you, it was a surprise that you were even pregnant, never mind, you know, losing the baby. Um, and, and add to that, you nearly died. So how, uh, what is, what's the mindset of that person in recovery? I don't think it really registered, to be honest. I think my mind just shut it down. You know, just didn't want to acknowledge what had happened. I didn't want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, the fact I didn't know I was pregnant for a start off, you know, but then to find out that I was pregnant, to have it snatched away and be told just to get on with it. You know, I, I had no kind of idea of what I was supposed to do with it. You know, there, there was nothing to bring home. There was nothing to grieve for. You know, there was no opportunity to grieve because it wasn't talked about you know it was so many people have gone through this and it's kind of lift the carpet up and sweep it underneath you know it never happened and I had to sort of set my mind into that mindset if you like that it wasn't a baby it wasn't real it was just yeah it's very difficult to explain it to people really because we just lived it. We lived the experience, you know. And I'm I'm guessing this. You, you were yeah. in your twenties. I think it's twenty. Yeah, twenty-four. And you, there's no internet. You can't be looking online no. for for a support group, for a Facebook group, for someone that might have gone through it. Who are you talking to? We didn't really talk about it because we didn't know how to. Could you talk to each other? No, not really. And and also at twenty four, like it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot for any age. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh dear. Oh dear me! I think it's just the emotion as well, because it's you know it's yeah, it's yeah. kind of acknowledging. Yeah, it's the first time you know it's the first time somebody's asked me how I felt and how I dealt with it. It's just so surreal, which is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? What? No, the it's the minute you. It's ridiculous, and and this is what I say a lot in Cradle is that we, we support so many other people, and we do so much for other people, and, and most people that I talk to when I say, you know, talk. Tell me what's your story. Tell me about what's happened, and a lot of people can. Louise did too. You know, you can. You'll tell me your journey, your experience on a quick timeline of this, 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 and here I am today. And you're like, oh, hang on, let's just stop and think about 
what you've just said because it's a lot and you never you don't do that on a normal day-to-day yeah it's it's just you know sort of after 30 years you don't want you don't think you can ever relive it you know and and yeah it's very difficult and we had um we've got like a support network at work and I'm one of the again another um, another ambassador role as a well-being ambassador and I talk to people all the time you know and, and support them and I that I sort of lead counsellor if you like she said to me one day Jules when do you ever stop and think about yourself and I said but I'm not there to think about me I'm there to think about other people you know <laughs> do you think there's something in the fact that you're doing so much for other people in a way to not focus on you probably Very probably, because I think I'd go, I'd, I'd probably just crumble, I think, if I started thinking about me instead of doing for other people. So many friends say to me, you know, Jules, you need to slow down, you need to take time out. And I'm thinking, but if I slow down, that's when it's going to hit me. What will Whatever. <laughs> Whatever's stuck in the back of my head that still hasn't kind of, materialized I don't know there's there's so much that I suppose I've not accepted or acknowledged yeah acknowledging the fact that there's no children it's some it's a hard thing to acknowledge Jules yeah. You know, people say to us, you know, you've you're really lucky, you've got nieces and nephews, you've got godchildren, you've got all these young people that look at you as surrogate parents, if you like, you know. But it's not the same. You know, the hardest part is anniversaries, birthdays, Christmas all those kinds of things when you spend time with family and we just got us two and the dog <laughs> life with the dog it's always a blessing <laughs> I think the hardest thing is um my last ectopic pregnancy which was in 1996 was I was taken to hospital having been treated for miscarriages and my sister was in hospital in labour. So I've never actually mm. bonded with my niece. They will be 27 next March. And that's... Because that's, a, I guess, a very clear reminder. Yeah, yeah absolutely, but... Can you do you talk to your sister about that? No, no, she we've tried, but she struggles to understand why I can't, um, why I can't bond. And even now, you know, this time later, you think I'd have moved on a little bit, but it's she understands how difficult it is without me having to say anything to her, but it has put quite a distance between us, and we were close at one time. 
we're not so close now. It's not her fault, though. <laughs> it's not her daughter's fault. It's just... No. It was one of those situations that I found really difficult, you know, and I, and I kept thinking, even then, you know, I opted to have my remaining fallopian tube removed and knew that that was the end of any kind of natural pregnancy. The hospital said, oh, we can, you can, we'll give you a session of IVF and see how you get on with that. But when your body's been ravaged by three ectopic pregnancies and numerous miscarriages in between, you, you just know that you can't take any more. So that's when we stopped. And then in uh, 90, that was 96, 97, I had a hysterectomy. I was 32. Just couldn't face the fear and worry of more life-threatening pregnancies, basically. So, so that's a seven-year mm -hmm. journey of yeah repetitive loss. Yeah. Trips to hospital, checks for this, tests for that. You name it, we had every test they could throw at us just to try and find what was going on. And they found nothing wrong. No reasons for the ectopic pregnancies, no reasons for miscarriages, nothing at all. Just bad luck. So to that chap who said to you, you know, go and put a bet yeah. on her. We could have been millionaires. Well, <laughs> I guess with, um, I've not experienced an ectopic um, and... You know, up until I started to work closely with Cradle, I, I think I was probably naive in, in knowing really what it was and the fact that you could have repetitive yeah. ones um, and how, I mean, you've said it yourself, you were close to death, how life-threatening mm. they are. Yeah, it's very scary, very scary. And trying to explain that to people... Um, I've had friends who've, who've presented with very similar symptoms and I've said to them, please go and get checked now, you know, oh, I can't be pregnant, you know, it's, it's this, that and the other. And I've said to them, please go and just get checked at the doctors, have a pregnancy test, ring up the scan unit and ask for an early scan. And fortunately, with the exception, I think, of one friend, none of them were actually ectopic pregnancies. They were just suffering with early pregnancy pains. And one, one lady, she, she did have a, actually have an ectopic pregnancy, but they caught it in time. And she's gone on to have children since. So she's been absolutely fabulous. But it's getting that message out there that these things aren't just something you can you, you get over. It's, you know, it is a life-threatening condition. <clears throat> it is very painful. And I know that there's people out there who've suffered PTSD as a result of it because, you know, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, you lose your fallopian tube, you lose your baby, you can lose your life as well. It's really difficult. How do you think the experience that you've been through has changed you as a person? I think it's given... <laughs> It's given me more confidence, and I know that sounds probably a bit bizarre. Before I got pregnant the first time, I was a very quiet, very reserved person. 
I wouldn't say boo to a goose, basically. And I think certainly since since joining Cradle, I've I've got a voice, and people listen. In actual fact, I was on a workplace training, residential training thing a couple of years ago. And one of our trainers was an um, ex-England international rugby player. And he said, I was the only woman on in on this training course. There was 20, 20 or so guys on there as well from work. And this guy said, hang on a minute, fellas. He said, Jules's voice needs to be heard. And he, him saying those words made me realise, actually, I do have a voice that needs to be heard. And that, I think that's, you know, it's given me the confidence, having gone through that experience of three ectopic pregnancies, never mind the rest of it, has given me the confidence to stand up and say to people, this happens. We have to be listened to as women. We have to be listened to as a family. We have to be listened to as couples. We need to change what happens in the world now. This isn't something you can just, like I said earlier, sweep under the carpet. We need to be listened to. We need to have services provided to us. We need to have that support network. You know, and if, if taking some bags into a hospital can do allow me to do then, then that's what I'm going to do. Why do you think it's taken you 30 plus years to be able to talk? <laughs> fear of judgment blame I suppose I've always thought there was something I'd done wrong and people would judge me because I've got no children I don't it's difficult really isn't it when somebody throws that question at you why you know why is it taking so long I honestly the answer is I don't really know I really don't know I think I've Worried that people are going to be, like I say, judgmental. The fact I can't, I haven't got any children. You know, we we were we were often asked, "When are you going to have? When are you going to start a family?" And you know, it, it breaks my heart to think that when people were asking me that question, I couldn't give them an answer because I honestly didn't know. And now I can say to people, "We weren't that lucky." Do you know that's a question that so many people ask? Yeah. don't they? And they, no one who asked you that question, they didn't know, obviously hadn't known about your experience. No. no, it's it's heartbreaking, and I and I I know now. You know, you look back and you think, would I have asked that question of somebody? You know, somebody who's got married, you having a family, because it's an assumption that you're just going to do that. You know, you're going to have a family. <clears throat> but not everybody's able to. And I think we need to, as a society, we need to give people the opportunity to say, I want a family, but I can't have one. Without any judgment, without any need for explanation as to why they can't have a family. Because not everybody's comfortable in saying, you know, I had ectopic pregnancy or I've had miscarriages or or whatever reason, you know, or I just don't want children. Um, I just assumed when I got married that it would be an automatic right to have a family. Nobody ever explained to me that it's not. Isn't that a thing? I feel like 
in my teens and early 20s, you were basically just told not to get pregnant and to make sure there was no chance of getting pregnant and do what you needed to do to make sure that didn't happen. And then when you're ready to have a baby, you're pregnant. Yeah. Like there was never, there was always the sex education classes in, um, lessons in at school. There was never a, what happens when it doesn't go the way you want mm. it to go. There's no, no lesson. There's no lessons in dealing with that kind of loss. And being told to go and get on with your life. Nobody encourages you to grieve. Nobody says to you that, you know, you are allowed to grieve because it is a bereavement and how long you grieve for is personal to you. There is no timeline on it. You know, we look on, we look on the Cradle Support Network and people are asking the question, how long do I grieve for? And my stock answer to that is always there is no timeline. You grieve for as long as you need to and my inbox is always open. And I will say that to everybody. You know, whether they're ambassadors, fellow ambassadors, um, whether it's a lady that pops onto the support network for just one one session or in the hospital, the nursing staff will ask me questions as well. And it's the same thing. You know, there is no timeline. You grieve for as long as you need to. And I think we need to get that into high schools during sex education lessons you know, getting pregnant isn't as easy as people think it is. This is what can happen. You know, the various different types of pregnancy loss, I think it's really important the girls are told that, and boys. Let's not differentiate between the two because the boys are involved as well. And make it acceptable to talk about it. Does the grief ever stop though, Jules? Nope, I don't think it does. Um, not really, because you've, you're always carrying that memory. It, it it doesn't matter. Like yourself, you've had a rainbow baby. You've had your own bereavements. The rainbow babies don't replace, because you you know that baby that baby was something that you wanted. You'll carry that with you for the rest of your life. I don't think it ever stops. And anybody who says it does, I, 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 I couldn't believe them. You know, 30 years and I'm still, it's still there, but it's, you know, the healing process is a lot easier now because I have this huge support network from Cradle. Do you think if you'd had that in the 90s, you'd be a different person today? I don't think so, no. I think I'd still want to. I'd still want to support people. I'd still want to take that message out there. I'd still want to... I'd still want to walk in the hospital with those yellow bags and people stop you and ask you, what what are they? And from the first time I walked in and somebody referred to them as evac bags and I'm like, no, they're not to now going in and the cradle lady's here because that's what I get when I walk in the hospital now. Oh, look, the cradle lady's here. So having in, in that 
sort of three years changed just that tiny little bit. Just imagine what we could do in 20 years, 30 years. How Cradle will have changed. What do you think that looks like? I think it's going to be huge. Well, there's no think about it. I know it's going to be huge. We're going to be in every trust in the UK. People are going to know Cradle because we're going to be... We give something that's tangible. We're not... We're not there on a on a website saying, oh, this is what we do and that's what we do. Yeah, we do that, but we do something really tangible. We go and give people a purpose. They have something that says somebody understands what we're going through. Something as simple as that letter that Louise wrote in a bag with some essential toiletries says to a woman, somebody understands, somebody cares, somebody loves us. And that's all we can do is is show people that we really care. If I'd have had that 30 years ago, I think that would have changed me completely and, and given me the opportunity to grieve sooner and to start healing sooner. They do, they say, um, or maybe I say, that the best, the best tool for grief is talking. And, you know, that's, I think that's true for, for a lot of people. But it's not true for everyone. Um, but to know that you've you've got that space, like you said, to have your voice heard, whether that's by one person or yeah. hundreds of people, it's hugely yeah. important. I mean, off the back of it, I've I've met some incredible people, and it's not just hospital staff. I've actually um, I've connected with a a funeral director because of Cradle because he set up a new business and I asked if I could go and talk to him about what we do and he's been an absolutely fantastic support for me as well he's had tissue packs and Cradle cards and he you know he will refer people to us if he's dealt with somebody the people I've met have just been absolutely incredible um my local Seroptimist Society, I've been and been awarded by them. I've got the opportunity to go and talk to them face to face in the new year. My, I've got a lo- local WI group who want me to go and talk about Cradle as well. It's just been an absolutely incredible journey for me, you know, to to meet just amazing people, absolutely amazing people. And while that's incredible for you. You know, one in four continue to miscarry. Um, And so the more people that you are connecting with, the knock-on effect, more people will know that we are there. And I think the biggest thing for me was just 12 months ago, um, going to an award ceremony in London because my boss had nominated me for the work I do for Cradle. And Cradle got known in London at this award ceremony in the Highways Network, which is my work environment. Right, that's incredible. And I bet there was no one else there that was being awarded for the hard work. Not for that. Towards a miscarriage charity. Most of them would been, they'd done something on the network, on the Highways Network. My colleague Jason, who um, raised quite a lot of money for Cradle two years ago, he was awarded for his charity work and for his charity fundraising. 
and he kept saying to me, this is for you and for Cradle. His but do you know what, Bet You opened up so many I had so many people night. come up to me afterwards. So many people who, my wife's had a miscarriage. Can we, you know, can we network with you for Cradle? Can we do this, that and the other for Cradle? And a few people have come back to me and they've been given Louise's contact details. I don't know how far they've taken it, but I still use my network on the Highways Network. I still put stuff on LinkedIn. I put stuff on Facebook. Because for me, it's so important that Cradle's message gets out there to everybody. I get it on the internet at work, you know, if I'm, if I've got a plan for something or I'll put on, oh, this weekend I've delivered 20 bags to Royal Stoke Hospital or I've done, you know, this is what I've done or this is what I'm looking for. And that tiny little bit of networking brings in so much resource for me. Things like, you know, what do you need this month, Jules, to go in your bags? And you end up with 20 hairbrushes, which is great, you know. Um, and they've just put something out asking all staff to nominate a charity. And Jason and I have both put Cradle on for next year's charity for the company. So you never know. Jules, the way you um, talk, the change in your voice when you talk about the work you do for Cradle and what Cradle means to you and, and how you want to support the people is a joy to hear because you are uplifted and you sound like you're singing. And that to me is you all over when it comes to Cradle, that you have put the experiences that you've been through and that you've not been able to talk about for so many years. And, you know, we can we can, we can can hear it in your voice when you talk about your ectopic pregnancies. You you will you do carry that grief with you, but the minute you start talking about supporting other people and how you do that, you you're just uplifted, and it's incredible. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you. Sorry. Yeah, it's just I just feel that if it's one small thing I can do that makes a difference to somebody then my life's fulfilled. It, you know, it, it's, like I say, taking bags into the hospital and, and people seeing them. And I've been stopped by nursing staff, by porters, by various different people walking through the hospital and they're going, what, what are those? You know, one, one lady, she said to me, oh, look, it's present time. And I said, but it's not the sort of presents you want. You know, and explaining them what what, would, what I'm doing and why I'm delivering them. And the look on their faces changed to, you think, well, I don't know. I can't really explain it. You know, their faces drop because it's going to somebody who's really suffering, but then they're seeing that suffering is going to be supported by somebody who understands you know, and, and spending time with some of the gynae team in the summer, explaining to them why I do what I do. And it's not just a bag anymore. It's mean, it's more meaningful than that. You know, there, there's a lot of thought goes into what goes in the bags. And there's a reason why we put things in there. And I explain all of that to them, even down to the little tea lights. Because somebody once said to me, 
I'm not going to give um, the equivalent of a wedding favour because what's the point in that? And when I said to them, the reason we put them is it's, it's symbolic of a way out of the darkness. All of a sudden I get lots of tea lights, you know, and it's it's people's understanding of, of why we do what we do and what why we put what we put in the bags. We could fill bags up with essential toiletries and they, they are just that, they're essential toiletries. But you put something in that's symbolic and that makes a, a huge difference to somebody. Mm. And again, the letter. You know, that letter, I, I pick that letter up every day and read it because every day I see a different meaning to what she's, what's been put on it. And it's, it's yeah. Do you? There's one in my drawer at work. <laughs> because if somebody says something, I say, read this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you know what? If you've not um, if you've not seen one of our letters, I'll um, we'll add it to the show notes. It's the dear friend letter. Um, so our founder Louise, who you may have heard the episode where where we where I chatted to Louise, um, episode one, I do believe. Um, she wrote that letter um, because she wanted to write a letter to herself that she wished she'd had when she was there alone in hospital. Um, and that's the letter that you refer to, Jules. It's the our dear friend letter, and it is. It's exactly that. It's dear friend, you're not alone. We're here. There is someone for you. For all of those people, myself included, that left the hospital without their baby, without hope, and without any contact details of anyone to talk to just sent away and told to move on it's for you because no one should feel like that not at the worst time not ever what would you say if you could and I had an amazing transporting machine what would you say to Jules in 1997, the jewels that had experienced seven years of losses and and a hysterectomy, if you could say anything to that to that jewels, then what what would you say to her? Never give up, because there's always something worth carrying on for. Did you did you feel at points that you did want to give up? Many times. I felt that, well, a few times that there was just no point in going on. But then I'd look at Tony and think, there's every reason to keep going on. Because he's right there beside me every day. He's my rock. Have you, I know you said back after your first step topic, you you know, you're only in your mid-twenties, you couldn't really, you didn't talk about it and you couldn't really talk to each other. Have you ever talked? All the time now. All the time. We, we'll sit and we'll talk and we cry and we we wonder. And, yeah, it's it's made us a lot closer together, I think, the fact that we do talk now. Um. I understand his perspective 
you know, the fact that after the third one, he went to his father and asked him why it kept happening. And his dad couldn't give him an answer. And, yeah, it's just made us so strong as a couple. And I think his engagement with Cradle as well is phenomenal. I couldn't do it without him. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine trying to, you know, load bags into his car so he can drive me to the hospital and park up while I run into the hospital, drop them off and come back so we'd have to pay for parking. <laughs> Not to mention the, you know, the one night he came home from work and there was 21 packages in the garage and all the, you know, trawling boxes up and down the stairs to put them in the spare room and helping me sort everything out. He's just, he's an amazing, amazingly, incredibly supportive person in everything that he does to support me with this. And he must be so proud of you. I think he is. I bet he is. And so you are living proof that out of the worst times, out of the darkest of times, there is hope. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for Jules? Oh dear. Um, Keep doing what I'm doing. Keep spreading the word of Cradle, keep delivering bags into the hospital, keep just keep being jeweled, I suppose. Person who listens and no judgment. And if somebody wants to sit in silence, then I'll sit in silence with them. And I will continue to do that for as long as I'm able to. And make sure you sit in silence with people when you want to and make sure you talk and keep that voice heard Mm -hmm. I will because your boss is right we all have to look after our jewels (laughs) yeah sure that there are and I know Tony is and you know that everyone in Cradle is here for you whenever you need it but you must remember that make time for yourself it's hugely important. We never, yeah. ever, do we? We never make time for ourselves. No. No, that's very true. We don't. We just, if you're a caring person, you put everybody else before yourself and somebody will say to you one day, when are you going to stop and think about you? And that's when you mm. do it. Well, make sure you do, young lady. I will. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, thank you so much. Honestly, on behalf of every single person that you've ever listened to spoken to stopped and had a two-second chat with that you've given a cradle bag to or explained about why we put peppermint tea bags in thank you you are cradle through and through absolute pleasure it's an absolute pleasure it really is if anyone in your area would like to support you to help you raise mm-hmm. funds or or collect toiletries how can they get in touch with you i'm on facebook at cradle for staffordshire uhnm nhs trust or you can email me at cradlejewels at gmail.com and i'll get back to you as soon as i possibly can because i quote my inbox is always open jules <laughs> yeah yeah Absolutely. You are an absolute sweetheart. And yeah, every time. 
Thank you so much, Kay. The lovely Jules. I know that won't have been easy opening up like that. So once again, Jules, thank you, thank you, thank you. What you've talked about tonight will have helped people massively. So thank you. And to you for being a part of this week's Cradle the Podcast. I know sometimes it can be a bit of a difficult listen. And so if you did want to talk to someone, please know that you're not alone. There's so many ways in which we can support you. Check out the website, www.cradlecharity.org. Before I go, can I beg you to do one little tiny thing for me? I say one, a couple. I'm talking about liking, rating, reviewing, sharing the podcast. The more people that we can get to listen, then the more people that we're reaching out to and the more people know that we're here and that we're here to support. So I'd really appreciate it. Anyway, whatever you're getting up to this week, I wish you peace, I wish you love, and I'll see you very soon.